Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast, the number one clothing optional fantasy book review podcast. Oh, we're going right there, aren't we? (laughs) It's clothing optional. Sure. Why not? You don't have to be dressed to do a podcast. If you're in your car, I recommend uh, being clothed from the waist up. Well, yeah, that's it's only decent. Just like tidbit there. (laughs) Learn that the hard way. All right. I am the Duke. I'm the Duchess. That's right. I'm here. Yes, 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 we are both here. All right. So today we are going to cover Name of the Wind, chapters 44 through 59. Woo-hoo. And what are we going to cover next week? Do we have that sketched out already? Um, or do no. we want to we get back to that? Uh, yeah, we'll get back to that. Okay, so I'll have to come back to that. Okay. All right, so we will start off talking a little bit about our spoiler policy. We like to do that every time because we want to make sure that we don't uh, catch any new listeners and then catch them off guard. Although in this case, nothing really to worry about. We are going to have a spoiler-free policy for this book as Liz, the Duchess, has read this book several times, but I have not read this book. Never, never read it. He's never read it. Never read it. Okay. All right, so we will go ahead and we will get started here. All right, so we are going to, we I I have been holding in all week, knowing that you have read this section of the book and wanting to ask you questions about it. And I've just keep starting to ask you the questions and then I'm like, oh, I can't talk about it till the podcast. Save so it for the podcast. It's been like really frustrating. I'm having I have podcast blue balls over here. So, Okay. I don't even know where to start. I, I, I don't even know where to start. Well, let's start. Let's keep it to our format, although we don't really have much of a format. But let's kind of s- summarize what the section was and then sort of go through everything chronologically. Because the big exciting stuff is right there kind of at, at the at the very, very conclusion. So I think it makes sense to do that. Right. Yes, I okay. agree. Um, so in this section, we just sort of were getting into Quoth's life at the university and his ups and downs and um, and the relationships that he builds. And, and he's just kind of settling into that and making a name for himself there. And there's a couple of um, interesting uh, interludes where we're back in the present. We learned some interesting things as well. So um, so that's basically my, my perception of this this section. Anything yeah, I- you'd add? I, well, I would um, I would agree that, you know, we're going through and we're talking about kind of day-to-day life and, and getting used to living um, at the university. I would say there's a couple of uh, significant differences or, or real kind of significant plot points. Um, for me, there are, are probably th- four. Um, so I would say first is that we learn about Quoth and his money issues around surrounding his second semester at the university right and then he has to borrow money at what is probably too steep a cost in my opinion uh so that's number one um number two he we meet ari who i think is going to have some significance uh and number three we go to the um and i can never remember the name of the the tavern but 
we get to see uh quoth aeolian the aeolian that's right we finally get to see him really show off and earn his pipes um you know have a little bit more conflict with ambrose and then the, the final one is that we get the return of a very important or at least we believe actually well we know a very very important character in diane when we win the lotto, can we just build the Aeolian? Can that Hell just yeah. be our yes? Good. Absolutely. Good. That's definitely something I want to do in my life. I have a one eighth scale model in the kitchen. <laughs> Actually, I think a one eighth inch scale model wouldn't even fit in our kitchen, but <laughs> probably not. But whatever, we'll roll with it. <laughs> so that's... all of our kids barely fit in our kitchen. Yeah, fair point. <laughs> fair point. Um, so the, yeah, so that's kind of the quick summary. And then I think we, you know, we can go through and kind of, um, you know, go through it piece by piece there. Oh, you know, we, the other important part that I forgot, and that's kind of actually where we begin is, um, talking about Aloden. Now, how do you Eladin. pronounce it? Eladin? Mm-hmm. I liked Aladin, but. I'm pretty sure according to P. Roth, it's Eladin. Eladin. Okay. All right. Well, if it's wrong, someone will let us know. I'm sure they will. <laughs> and please do. Because yeah, for us, yeah. this is probably, you know, sometimes the first time we've said these names out loud. So yeah. I've been saying things in my head a certain way, you know, and, and only recently um, kind of found some videos where Patrick Rothfuss is saying them the way he thinks they are. So, yeah, correct us. Yeah. And we're not, um, we don't read or listen rather to the audiobooks. So that doesn't, we don't have any help there. Uh, we got several corrections on our pronunciation of coat when we were pronouncing it cote. And you know what? We're grateful for that. So, um, so chapter 44 is where we began. Um, and really what I think, so there's a long conversation with Kilvin in the fishery about ever burning lamps. And, you know, this is the second time it's been brought up and I'm sure it's not for no reason. Although I can't figure out exactly where that's going to go yet. There's clearly some reason why that keeps coming around. And then also, uh, Quoth talks to his friends trying to figure out who's going to be a sponsor to get to the next level. Is it Raylar? Is that the next level? Yes. Okay. So he's trying to find out who's going to be a sponsor for that. Um, and they suggest uh, Kilvin. He asks about Eladin. Uh, and they laugh and tell him Eladin's crazy and explain how he escaped from the rookery. Well, let's let's just back up if we can, because we're kind of we, we kind of did our. We, want. we can. We can take our pants off if we want to. We could take our pants off. Let's. <laughs> we may have some teenage listeners. I don't know if we want to go there. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. So yeah, let's back up a little bit because we okay. jumped into the recap of the section, and now we're kind of okay. Kind of not going back to the beginning so did i miss something i must have missed something or i wasn't listening either is equally likely at this point <laughs> i'm pretty tired <laughs> um so no did we so we talked about well so you're talking about kilvin yeah mm-hmm. and we talked about the art of um artificery yeah correct and mm-hmm. i just think that's that's an interesting um addition to the magical system yeah that we hadn't talked about before in the book i'm sorry did you talk about that where i, I where no I wasn't we really, listening no to i didn't you? i didn't really get into so it. yeah i i like that so you have you have the idea of sympathy which is basically 
believing two different things in your mind and making things happen basically out of the strength of your belief or the strength of your mental will, um, forcing your will in the world. Yes. Yes. LR. And, um, now we have this, this whole system of artificery, which is basically sounds like it's using runes to channel powers. Yeah. Kind of a combination of runes and chemistry and right you know basic construction and all that yeah. right so um so they don't get very deeply into it but just kind of gives you a smattering of of what this whole complex system is so i really like that i really like a well thought out magical system and a unique one and that definitely this book definitely has that yeah i, I would agree um you know it's it's um never been something that's hugely critical to me as long as whatever rules you set up you don't violate them down the road you know that's always been kind of my rule around magic systems as long as it's not willy-nilly you know right um and random but no it's definitely a well thought out magic system there's there's no no doubt about that yeah well and what i like about this magic system is it's not you know when you look at why is this you have this main character who's so powerful he's so good at magic and why is that and it's not like some mystical just because reason okay it's not midi-chlorians it's it's the power of his mind, you know, and that just comes down to this is a brilliant, extremely, extremely intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is there is supernatural and magical aspects to the story as well. But it comes down to the magical system is really based on um, the power of a person's mind and, and trained by training his mind. So I've just never seen anything quite like that. I thought it was really interesting. And, and I just I like what that says. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree, and and that's actually not an area I had really thought of, although it's it's kind of obvious when you when you say it, but um, it really does come down to the strength of the person's mind and will. Um, it's not as simple as you know you have the um, you know you have the MacGuffin, so therefore you hold all the power. The MacGuffin, exactly. You know? There's no MacGuffin here. There's no well, not that we know of. Not that you know. I'm not- sorry. <laughs> there could be a MacGuffin. I don't know. Nobody tell Chad about the MacGuffin that comes up in book two. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. You know what a MacGuffin is. That's right. I do. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so there's also a um, a part in this chapter where uh, they're all talking about, like I said, about who's going to be, quote, sponsor. And right. Savoy, they're in a bar, and Savoy uh, leaves them because he has a date. Right. Which... That sort of comes back around at the end. Right. So we'll go ahead and and leave that right there. And I just really, I enjoy the interactions between uh, Will and Sim and and Quoth and just this this friendship as you're watching it develop and and these sort of like nonsensical conversations you kind of watch them having and the whole thing about Savoy throwing a corset at Master Heme and I don't know, it just, it feels like a real relationship. It feels like sitting with your group of college friends, you know, and, and this, this, this tight bonds that form when you spend all of your days together in this shared environment, you know, and I, I just think it helps the care, all the characters seem more real. Um, so I, I just always enjoyed those interactions that they have. And, and yeah, so they, they, um, I, and I thought this also was a really, um, really telling about quotes character um this in this conversation where they're suggesting okay so kilvin likes you you're good at this makes sense to go to kilvin and and have him sponsor you to to raylar and uh he kind of wants more than that 
you know, so even yeah, he's though not he's, happy, yeah. he's settled into this daily life and this, he's kind of, he's left the street quoth behind, he's left his childhood behind, he's university student quoth now, but he still has that, that goal, that ultimate thing kind of driving him. And he wants, he wants to learn the name of the wind. Yeah, absolutely. So, so he goes to Aladdin. So he seeks out Aladdin. Now, before that, we have a little, before he finds Aladdin, we have a little interlude where we're back in the, quote, present time with Coat, slash Quoth, and uh, Bastion Chronicler. Not one where anything really significant happens that I remember. Uh, one thing jumped out at me, okay, yeah. personally, from that interlude. And it's something that we talked about probably last week. But just kind of a wink to the the narrative structure, the unusual narrative structure here. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about it a little bit last week, how this story has a lot of the elements of a classic epic fantasy, but you're reminded that it's not a story. It doesn't have the feeling of being in a story. And we, I think we talked about this too, a little bit when after Quill's parents died and he wandered off into the woods and how in sort of your traditional epic fantasy story he would then go and like overcome a triumph and go right and get his revenge and and like this things would progress and instead he just kind of flounders around for three years and just forgets that he knows anything that he knows and and um it it makes him more real and it makes the story feel more real because that's what a person would do and so i feel like um this is the the chapter where quoth directly says that because Bast, I think, turns to him and says, why didn't you go back and find Scarpy? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And yep. and Quill says, well, you could say it was this and you could say it was that, but the reality is, is that I wasn't living in a story. Yep. And if you can look back, he says, um, you look back over the this as a cohesive narrative and it would make sense. You know, this happened and then you do this, but he was living it. And so he explains that... Um, you know, even though, and I think one thing that um that comes back later is, you know, he's talking about, okay, think of all the stories you've heard. Um, you have a young boy, his parents are killed. He sets up for vengeance. What happens next? And Bass says, oh, well, he finds help. A clever talking squirrel, an old drunken swordsman, that sort of thing. And so, and you're like, yes, that is what you'd expect. You know, that would be completely typical. Straight out of the hero's quest. Exactly. Hero's journey, rather. Exactly. And so um, Quoth kind of puts that out there that, yes, in a story, that's what happened. But this this was my life. And I had other struggles. And then he talks about his poverty and, and all the other things he's trying to overcome at the time. And so while those things were still important to him, he's just and, and we've all been there, haven't we? You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. I actually thought it was a weird sort of question in one regard. I don't know. I put myself in my 15-year-old shoes, and I think, here's a guy I saw twice. He got, the second time, you know, this violent thing happened, and he got carried off. Uh, but he seemed to act like he had friends at in the church, or, or at least Quoth mentions that. I sort of feel like, I don't know, me, I would have taken it kind of at face value, and I would have just moved on. I don't I don't know that I would have sought to seek that person out. Well, and the way I heard the question was less 
hey, why didn't you go rescue Scarpy? But more, what happened to your quest? What happened to the Chandrian? What happened to your to uh. your vengeance? You know, you were you were like floundered around and then he meets Scarpy. And that's where the, the idea of this whole like non-traditional narrative and yeah. he's kind of giving that a nod. So, okay, like his parents are killed. He grieves. He spends three years doing nothing. All of a sudden he hears Scarpy's story and he's ready to, he's like, I'm going to go find the Chandrian. And then psh, nothing, nothing. So what, like what happened to that? And to Quill's answer is, well, Hey, like, that would be great in an epic story, but this was just my life. And I was just floundering here, like just trying to survive and meet the goals that I could in front of me. And and that's just real. Exactly. And uh, we get a little bit of that later in this section as well, where after he deals with Elodin and gets rebuffed, he just kind of goes on about his life. Because what are you supposed to do? You, you've been banned from the archives the guy, the only person who knows anything about naming won't have anything to do with you. Right. So you and gotta then, move on. And then this whole, this whole concept of I'm not, I'm not living in a story. He's not living in a story kind of carries through in the next chapter where, which is the, the whole interaction with Elodin and he finds him and, and he sets about this as he would any goal that we've seen Quill set about like, okay, what, you know, he he when I love the first he, he talks to him and says, I, I was hoping to talk to you and Elodin says, uh, sad little hope, you should aim higher. Yeah. And Quill <laughs> says, Well, I was hoping to study naming and he says, Up oh, too high. Something in between. Yeah. And uh so Quill sets about trying to like crack Elodin and and I think he unwittingly sort of thinks of him as this is the mad hermit in my story. He's the one who's going to give me the power. And I, I just love that direct nod to like, this is where you'd expect a story to go. It's not where this story is going to go. Yeah. And the, the other part of it is the whole interaction with Elodin, you know, he's going around, he's, he's taking him through the, the rookery. He's seeing the people and all the craziness, you know, and, and all the while in quotes head, it's just, well, he's just challenging me, and he just right. wants to this see. This is all about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just wants to see if I'm dedicated enough, you know. Um, now, to his credit, before he commits his, um, before he attempts to 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 fly, before he commits his <laughs> his his stupidest sin, you know, the um, or Elodin rather takes him into the room where he was imprisoned for two years, and you know, shows him something straight out of Tavern and the Great. Right. He makes the wall, he says the name of the rocks, makes the wall turn into sand, creates this giant hole, you know, and just walks out onto the roof, like right in front of, quotes, eyes. You know, he makes this this crazy thing happen. Um, and then it's right after that that, you know, quotes says to him, what do I have to do to get you to teach me naming and he looks Elodin looks him straight in the eye Elodin who in my mind is played by Robin Williams yes young Robin Williams yes thank you right I I, I've I've, I haven't ever said that to you have I no sorry you just took my Dreamcast (laughs) Elodin right out of my head um sorry I'm sorry that was he says jump right and quoth not only does but as he does, he turns and looks at him. Yeah. <laughs> like he just knows that 
it's going to be the storybook ending, you know? <laughs> and it's not the storybook ending. And I, I love that. I love how he how um, he sets that up. And even as he's about to jump, he's thinking, this is it. This is the moment. He knows the name of the wind. He's Taborlan the Great. He's got, I'm going to float down like a feather. This is my, you know, and then <laughs> splat. Breaks his ribs. You know? And I just, I love, it, you know, when, when he, when he kind of comes to and Eladin is standing over him and he just says, that is without a doubt stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and then like the next line was, and that is when I decided to pursue the noble art of art artificing. <laughs> um, that's so far as the only part of the book I've actually chuckled out loud at. Right. That was, that was definitely a, a hilarious part. It does cause me to have some questions though. The whole situation around naming is, is very weird to me. Um, and I mean it from this angle, that Ben knew the names of things. Chronicler, who went to the university, knows the names of things. But it seems like the current university, like that's just either a lost art or just something they're not pursuing or we haven't seen it. I don't know. But from what, from what I gather, it seems like that's just not a road they're even going down anymore. Like the university is just kind of a shadow of what it used to be. And I don't mean a shadow of what it used to be, you know, a hundred years ago. It's not like our, you know, Tar Valen and the um, Aesodai and, you know, in Wheel of Time and all the stuff they've forgotten. But like, you know, Chronicler didn't go to the university that much further ahead of Quoth. So I don't know if I'm missing something or if, or what's going on there, but it just seems like that section of of learning has just been forgotten well i think two things um first i think your impression is correct for the most part and i don't want to go too into it because i believe the book does go into it later the history of naming what how it used to be taught why it's not so much anymore um one piece that i think maybe you're missing is that you don't learn the names of things. You can learn a name. So Ben knew the name of the wind, mm. but that doesn't mean he knew the name of stone or iron or anything else. Gotcha. Chronicler, as far as we know, knows the name of iron. We haven't seen him use any other name. So you, gotcha. people tend to learn just because you've learned the name of one element, I don't think means that you know the names of other elements and it's the names seem to be tied to natural elements. Mm -hmm. There's some speculation, I think, um, on message boards and in the community about names and, and what other names there might be out there. Yeah. Um, but, but it seems to be natural elements. Which makes what Eladin did, I think even more impressive. Right. And he's the, he's the master namer of the university. So, yeah. And, and it seems like they changed whatever stone, cause they had to replace the wall, obviously. Right. You know, and let's say it was granite, you know, and then they replaced it with limestone. Now I'm sure. Some, well, I think it, there's, there's copper running through and they put it the as mesh, well. The copper mesh in there, but clearly they made some changes, but he was able to roll with it. So he clearly well, knows more names than. Yeah. And, and another piece though, that, that was mentioned a few chapters back that we were talking about was how they were talking about what happened to Eladin and how he at one point was the chancellor and was a brilliant arcanist and um, something happened and he cracked. 
yeah and how many you that you just wonder if that's why um there aren't that many students of naming anymore what do you have to do and why he's not willing to teach you know and here quoth comes and asks him to teach him naming where does Eladin take him oh yeah absolutely no and i think that's fairly clear and then the um the one person that we meet uh, whose name I wrote down, but Alder Wynn, um, you know, he takes him to meet him immediately, and he was his giller, you know, the person who worked for him and worked with him, you know, closely, and where did he end up? So, no, I think that's fairly clear, um, you know, that there's a serious consequence to dealing with, with names. And that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty common trope but i think a really necessary one in fantasy literature is that power doesn't come for free you know yeah, and you don't yeah. get this this earth shattering element bending power with no consequences yeah fair point right i'm Good. full of them yes you are I'm full of fair points over yes, here you are. gotcha so after the situation with um with Aladdin, uh, when Quoth takes his very brief flight, we kind of get into just a kind of like, here's the rest of the semester montage, you know, where Quoth talks or, talks about how he deliberately builds up uh, a reputation that he, you know, wants people to think he is crazy and reckless. And also about how he he goes out of his way to really antagonize Ambrose. Not so much that he goes out of his way to antagonize him, but he's just... He won't kowtow to him at all, even if that's the right. wise move. Right. And anytime Ambrose, you know, gives him one slight, he returns two. And he did this really just just because he, he was more concerned about his reputation than he was about anything else. Now, to his credit, at the end of the chapter, he says he thought, you know, Ambrose was harmless and or i don't know if that's the word he uses but um but he admits that he was foolish and i think that's clearly foolish to think that that that's not going to somehow come back to bite you right yeah there's a nice little bit of foreshadowing there that this rivalry is not going to end well for quoth and um you know it's from cool's perspective he survived the streets of tarbian like what's this jackass gonna do to him he's no pike he's no pike you know um, but the rules are completely different here. And, and obviously he's, yeah, and he's a 15 year old kid. So yeah, I think it's, it's natural that he's going to be naive about some things. You kind of forget that. Yeah. I think his naivete is just, it's so on display in these chapters in the university. And there are some other things that happen later in this chapter that I really think speak to that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I suspect you know, play into that. But just all throughout these chapters, you know, he walks in thinking he's so smart because he is brilliant. It's the classic teenage trap, right? Of you're as intelligent as you're ever going to be. You're as sharp and as witty as you're ever going to be. And yet you still don't know jack shit. It's true. It's true. You're at your highest fluid intelligence anyway. Yeah. Crystallized intelligence peaks around 75. 75. FYI. Damn, I got something to look forward to. You do. <laughs> All right. So after that, we have our little interlude pee break. Ooh. Right. And we, uh, uh, for we me. take a pee break? What? <laughs> Let's take a pee break. Oh, oh man. That, that was you, a great pee break. I just don't know where you're even at tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really late and I'm. 
<laughs> so tired. You're rolling with the punches. It's I'm all rolling. good. I'm rolling. Okay. Um, so, no, they do literally have like a pee break. They, you know, that's put out there. And they bring up what's another, uh, another major theme that I see in this book, which is fear. Yeah. Um, and, and how, how do we develop fears? How, how do they change us? And again, to me, it all ties back to the, what I see as one of the central themes of the book of, of identity. Who, who are we? What makes us who we are? And so Bass is talking thinking about some of his fears and how he's not afraid of much and how um, one thing that really stuck with me um, in his sort of internal musings is how um, not wanting something to happen doesn't necessarily make it a fear. So no, he doesn't want to be hurt or killed or anything like that. But the line that, that jumps out to me is to really fear something, you have to dwell on it. And so for Bast, he's thinking about this fear of heights that he didn't have any fears. And then he had this experience where he fell out of a tree and was kind of dangling. And, and it says just like that, this little fear kind of took root and how now he has this fear of his master's silence. So I just think that's, that's an interesting reflection and something that's so true about all of us. Well, and it goes back to the very prologue. Right. You know, um, you know, and, and Coates silence. And then we also get from that, we kind of get when Quoth breaks his silence, you know, he says, what is our story missing? And what it's missing is a love in- interest. So, right. And, know, and Bass says, it's that, a sausage party up in here. Right. Exactly. But before that, and I think again, it, we, we get another nod to the fact that this is not your traditional narrative because here we have the storyteller even kind of stopping and going, uh, I, I don't even know where to go from here, hmm. you know? And Bass says, well, we'll just talk about what's most important. And Quoth says, but, but what's most important? And he says, what is uh, my magic or my music, my triumphs or my follies? So uh, again, this is not like a, a hero does ABC gets this result kind of story. This is a story about a human just doing things. And as much as we talk about, you know, we've identified a bunch of common tropes, you know, the idea of starting out at an inn, the idea of your parents get killed by the enemy, you know, all these different tropes that we've talked about, the wizarding school. But the thing about a trope is that nobody cares about the trope if it's well executed. And there's no story out there that doesn't, that isn't filled with tropes, you know, tropes aren't a bad thing well and i think tropes are are sometimes necessary especially in the fantasy genre to root the story in our common experience you know um and and gives us something to to touch base but at the same time i like how patrick rothfuss doesn't like lean into the tropes and again he has a story he wants to tell about a character and about humanity and he has things he wants to say about that and he uses the tropes and he, and he uses the story to say those things. And I think that's just what makes a really great book. Well, and the tropes are really in a lot of the things that for the most part are kind of window dressing things. I mean, quotes, parents dying is not window dressing, obviously, but, but a lot of the, a lot of the things that don't really have a lot of, you know, they don't, they don't really have a huge bearing on, on what actually goes on in the overall narrative, but where he really does, betray a lot of tropes is in the actual narrative is in how it's actually told 
Um, and that's where a lot of originality is, you know, is built into the story. So, right. And you end up with this character with a, with this complex and nuanced life and you know, it's just like our lives can't be defined by a series of actions from A to B to C. And that's what his is. So he obviously he kind of answers that question, though, I think at the end, because when he says what is more important, my magic or my music, and then he goes on to talk about his music and how yeah. that comes back into his life. That was just kind of an interesting, interesting thing. And we kind of um, and he mentions the woman. So you can tell. So what we know so far is that chronicler uh they're talking earlier in in the in the book they're talking about the stories they tell and when chronicler brings brings up the woman quoth you know smashes a wine bottle you know so obviously there's there's some big feels going on here lots of and uh and the way he even is afraid to describe her or talk about her shows that he is still infatuated he ain't over it he ain't over it he ain't ain't over it no, there's some there's some heartache. There's some Bill Withers rolling in the background. I mean, <laughs> you know. I knew she was bad news. <laughs> I knew she was bad news. He's got news. no sunshine, no sunshine <laughs> at, at the Waystone Inn. None. <laughs> so uh, um So we go we go on from here and we go to uh the end of the tuition and the marking of next Right. Uh, the next term and what the tuition's gonna be for that. Um, and, and they don't decide to give him money this time. They actually make him pay. Make him pay. And of course it's more than he has. So that mm-hmm. brings him into Imre. And he meets? He meets Debbie. Debbie! He meets, She's my favorite. Okay, so hold on. So, spo- so you, so apparently she comes back around. I'm sorry, shit. <laughs> no, that's no, all right. But, uh. It's, it's okay. <laughs> She's just my favorite. Well, even this one scene that he has with yeah. her. I just, I just love this character. So, so hang on. You, out of nowhere, pulled out of your head my Dreamcast, Elodin. So I'm going to see. I'm going to try. I'm going to see if you get if you get my Dreamcast, Debbie. Isla Fisher. Nuh-uh, no. I'm sorry. You didn't get that one. The magic didn't hold this it time. It didn't hold this time. <laughs> Kristen Bell. Uh, no. Yeah. No one else is sassy enough. Yeah, Kristen Bell does have... Yeah. She's got you gotta have sass to play Debbie. She's pretty sassy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So we meet Debbie and she's sassy and she's super smart and, and she's awesome. She's, you know, one of my favorite characters in the book. Um so it, I'm I'm looking at you. There's there are there are glances going on across the podcasting table here that of course you you in the audience can't see. Um and it, it's just interesting to me because you know, we say the name Debbie and you're like, Debbie, yes. <laughs> and and my reaction was not that at all. Like, really? No. So not that I didn't find her, like you said, chock full of sass. 10 pounds of sass in a five pound bag. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? A lot of sass going on there. But um, when I first read it, I didn't think a whole lot of it. But I always go through and read these twice. And when I'm reading back through this chapter again, after everything that happened, oh, and why can't I remember the name of that in again? Aeolian. Aeolian. Everything that happened in the Aeolian, and just with the, just with the little bit of time, with the story settling in my brain, I'm like, this blood thing is a bad idea. 
Yes. It is a bad, 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 terrible idea. You know, um, and it's just, I don't know that from, there's, I, I, re, I read through that text very carefully again, all the parts with Debbie, and there weren't a whole lot of clues that I could get that led me to think that she was deliberately up to anything nefarious. The only thing that might possibly lean that direction is that when he went in there and he said, you know, she said, it's four talents. And he said, well, I don't need four talents. And she's like, no, no, no. Listen, this isn't a negotiation. I'm telling you right. how things work. But as soon as he was like, you know what? I can't do that. She was like, well, you know what? Maybe it's two talents. And now she starts to back off. Now that's kind of happens in a normal negotiation. So I didn't think anything of it, but it caused me to think, was that maybe inten- intentional? I, I don't know. But the, the blood thing, it seems to me that his blood being out there and it being such a potential cr- kryptonite is not going to go unused. It's not going to go unused. Something's going to come from it. And I feel like that blood is going to end up in the hands of Ambrose one way or another. Um and maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's just my overly uh, paranoid impression of what's going on here. And, you know, it even caused me to think this whole time that, you know, he's talking, again, we talk about him being naive, right? So he thinks he knows what's going on so much. You know, he, he thinks he knows this game because he's been around people and he lived in Tarbian. But the reality is, as he gets there, it's not who he thinks it's going to be. She asks for blood um, on top of the the interest and all these other things. And do we know that, I mean, she plays it off like that's a normal thing. But did he see any other bottles? I mean, we don't know that that's normal. Right. It doesn't say anything about that. You know, just because she says it is doesn't really mean anything. You know, so she could still be an outstanding character she could have nothing to do with Ambrose, not at all be in league with him. This could be 100% the normal way that she does things, but that blood's going to end up in somebody else's hands. You know, I'm not going to speculate with you either way there, obviously, but I, I do. I enjoy hearing your speculations. Um, My paranoia. Your your tinfoil hat. I love it when you get out your tinfoil hat. I've got several. um what i take from this chapter on on my most um current reread is the um how he's so he's finally bringing up music and you know he he hasn't talked about it or or and and he he addresses that um you'd think that i would have been in this town with all the music and but then and then this is the first time maybe not the first time but he brings up the sweet eaters the dinner resin and that's sort of the, I guess the the drug of the this world. Yes, yeah, the crystal meth. The of, crystal meth, or what, yeah. or whatever. So um, he brings up the music for the first time in a long time. He goes right to talking about the sweet eaters, and then he he draws this parallel of that's how he feels about music. Like he can't even be around it if he can't play. He doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want anything to do with it. It's too painful for him. And so to go from in a pre- the previous chapter, him saying, what's more important, my magic or my music? And then th- this is kind of the answer. So he wasn't willing to part with his blood in order to go to university for another semester. He would walk away from that. But he walks by a pawn shop and he sees this loot 
And just like that, he'll part with his blood for that. That's a good point. I hadn't picked up on that. I mean, obviously, I read I read that right. just like you did, but I had written... But you were still stuck in like, holy shit, he just gave his blood away. <laughs> What's going to... Well, I just hadn't thought about about it from the from the standpoint of the priorities as you put it out there um and and relating it back to the questions in the interlude um because i i was just thinking about how to move forward you know and looking at that as a tool him thinking if i get this loot i'll be able to get my money back wasn't thinking about it in terms of you know where he puts that everything in the priority standpoint but no i think that's a great observation right and when you when, there's a couple of lines at the end of the chapter where well and he goes back to debbie and she says okay so two talents then and he says no four because then he says i could sleep outside in the wind and the rain my loot deserved better yeah <laughs> and he says he talks about how it's battered and it cost him too much and and then but then he says i loved it like a child you know like breathing like my own right hand and so you you realize that this is an integral part of this character. This is part of who he is and always will be. And is and one of the things that we we talk about also in this section and in the next um, chapter is the degree to which Quoth is spreading himself far, far, far too thin. He's, you know, it's like he's almost double majoring, you know, right? Uh, you know, in, in the medica as well as the fishery. But then he throws, you know, a couple hours a day of playing the lute on top of it. Right. So I added up when he when he's going through and this is we have a short little chapter called Tarantin where. Um, yeah, Quoth is talking about studying Sigildry and how uh, and, and again, it goes back to how brilliant he is, where most students take months or, you know, a whole term to learn it. And he learns it in seven days. Yeah. Uh, but he does it by making a song, setting it, setting the runes to music. And he just, boom, can learn them like that. And then we also see you'd miss it if you weren't reading it really carefully. There's there's a scene where he he does that. He puts the, the runes to music and then finds an apple. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he finds the he he hears a bunch of noises. Are we talking about the same scene? Right, right. And he thinks it is it animals. He keeps checking; it's mm -hmm. nothing. Um, he's wandering through the mains as he's practicing, and he comes across a gate, like a storm drain. Mm -hmm. And he comments on it, and he says, "This one, you know, might be large enough to get a person through." Um, and he starts to kind of fiddle with it. And he's trying to figure out how to open it when he notices that there are runes on the grate. Um, and right then the the bell rings uh, for him to go to class and he turns around and there's an apple sitting right beside him. Is that the same apple we're talking about? Uh, possibly. I, I don't remember all those details, but but an apple shows up where after he's been playing where it shouldn't have been it shouldn't have been it was obviously placed there yep yeah that's um, the same scene yeah right and then and then that's just a short little scene and then we go on to to quote freshman burnout yeah <laughs> phase and so i like sat down and wrote down now he goes on i spent this many hours doing that so um it, it adds up to 10 hours of classwork for him every day yeah wow in addition to a job and then studying for the, those classes as well. And two hours of lute playing. And practicing lute. So obviously this kid is not sleeping. 
or eating or taking care of himself. Or wearing pants. It's crazy. Or wearing pants. Probably not. I mean, you're going to forget things. You're going to forget things. Some things have to go by the wayside. So uh, he is, he's stretched thin and his friends call him out on it. And I just love that scene. Uh, all of these scenes with Will and, and Sim and where they're just kind of, you know, relaxing and, um, and, and kind of just sitting around shooting the breeze. It just, this is such a mature relationship between and a friendship and those you know those interactions almost sort of feel like home yes you know and for quoth that's it's as close to a home as he's had in in quite a long time and will and sims actually get him not really banned but uh, they get him fired they get him kind of fired from the fishery right and and he takes it surprisingly well Right. And, and he's, I think it, it, he's, he's very touched by, um, even though he's, he's, he's pissed angry, about that, but... but before that, the fact that they miss him, you know, and they call, call him out and say, you're not, we haven't seen you. We miss you. You know? And, and he says, I hadn't had anyone miss me since I was a child. Wow. And, um, and he becomes kind of emotional. Um, so I, it's just such an important thing for him. And I also, um, Something that always sticks out to me when I read this chapter is uh, what he says about poverty and what it's like, you know, and, and you might, he says something about, you might ask why I didn't tell my friends how poor I am. And, and if you have to ask that, then you've never been poor. You've never been poor. Yeah. So he's just like struggling to keep it all together on the outside. And and he says, the only thing I could afford was my pride, you know? And you know, it's funny that the people who give poor people the most shit for being poor or other poor people. Mm. So all through that, we um, they start to talk about the Aeolian. I, did I get it right? Aeolian. Isn't that yes. a guitar thing? Aeolian? A- Aeolian tuning? Oh, the... Um there's, there is an Aeolian mode. Yeah, yeah. Aeolian mode. Okay, okay. So, it's a, so that'll help you remember it. That will help me remember it. Yeah. Um, one other thing back in this in this before we move on from this chapter is we there's a scene in alexa doll's advanced sympathy class and we learn about something called binders chills yes yes so i i don't think it's been mentioned before that that's something that could happen yeah we got the sympathy rap battle yeah right so they're throwing down in alexa doll's class and we find out what happens if you draw so so basically the way sympathy works is if you're trying to um it's it's all about moving forces, moving moving elements, moving power. And he talks about he talks about how you can't create energy; it has to come from somewhere. Exactly. You yes, energy. That's somewhere. the word I was looking for. So, you know, in a bind, you can always draw a little bit of energy from your own body, but we get to see firsthand what happens if you draw too much energy from your body, and the the friend that he's dueling ends up drawing too much and collapsing in into hyperthermia and probably would have died if he had not been there at the university at yeah. the university so they can get him straight to the medica yeah so again we get to see that you know the the price of power and the and the price of wielding these forces um and that it's not just a it's not just a a free-for-all no and again and power comes with a cost and in good efficient storytelling fashion we get a lot of these things these this information about things like binders chills right when we need it, you know, yes. right before we need it. Just like the runes on the grate in the, in the courtyard in the mains, you know, it isn't until right before that, a chapter or two before that, that we get 
information about all the runes and what they mean and what that's all about. Right. Um, and then and then it comes up. So just you know, good efficient storytelling. He's not telling you these, but not things super no obvious. No, no, no. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't read that obvious. Not unless you're going back and analyzing it right. and writing notes down, like we right. are, which most yeah, exactly. Most people don't do exactly. So yes, the Aeolian, and uh, well, before we oh, so he's getting ready to go to the Aeolian. He's asking his friends about him. He tells us a little bit about it. He's getting ready to go. They say, "Can we come watch all that?" But before he goes, he he goes for one last practice, and he meets with Ari. Yes, and so we we kind of come in. We meet Ari, sort of in the middle of their relationship. It's not the first time they've met. And I kind of love that it you're not you're not it's kind of sitting through all those first interactions, but he tells you about them and how obviously she's the one who left the apple and Ori is a, a student who's cracked and we know that this happens. But rather than before they could catch her, I guess she is now living, been living under the university in whatever's down there. She's not a cracked student. She, she's a fae. Oh, there. They're all a fae to you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like the everybody's a Targaryen. Everyone's a secret Targaryen. Everyone's a Targaryen. They're all secret Targaryens. <laughs> so my thing now is going to be that they're all fae. They're all fae. They're all fae. Mm-hmm. You, know, you throw one dude that's got hooved, hooved legs that nobody can see. <laughs> now everyone's a fae. <laughs> well, let's, okay, just for the purposes of, of, of what the narrative is telling us. I, I I'm sure the what's na- outwardly said in the story is that she is she's presented as a cracked student who is living under the university um, and Quoth is kind of enchanted by her and wants to to protect her. Um, but, you know, and he also portrays her, though, as as kind of helping him, too, because um, she's cracked and she's homeless and she's living under a building, but she's also not um, broken. You know, um, I I'm, I'm not, can't remember exactly how he, he describes her, but well, he, he talks about her being, you know, uh, waif-like and clearly, you know, underfed, and how she's tiny and super thin. Her cheeks were hollow, and and he said she almost reminded him of what he he was like in Tarbian, mm-hmm. except he said in some other way she was nothing like him because she was constantly clean and always full of joy. Yes, joyful. I think that's how he described yeah. her. So even though physically she may have looked, you know, like a like a street urchin in terms of, you know, just her drawn, gaunt body, but that her attitude and demeanor couldn't have been any anything further from what his life was like in Tarbian. Right, and so they that they apparently have a habit of meeting on the roof, and and he brings her whatever food he can. And and tells it. They tell each other cute little, um, cute little stories about behind the gifts that they've brought, and um, it's all very enchanting. So you just get this little glimpse of Ori. Yeah, I liked Ori. And, I liked um, her much better than Debbie. That's because you don't know Debbie yet. Okay, apparently we're gonna spend more time with Debbie, and that's Shh, cool. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> don't diss on Debbie. All right. All right. I won't. I'll, I'll keep it to myself. Keep it to myself. She's bad news. <laughs> I'm telling you, she's bad news. Um, yeah, but I li- I like the whole part with Ari. You know, it's funny when I read through these things. Sometimes I'll go through and I'll 
you know, I'll read about the great and then we'll move on from the great and, and I'll just, I'll forget about it until an Ari pops up and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That was supposed to go somewhere, you know, but it's amazing how quickly you forget about these things. So after Ari is when we actually go to the Aeolian and, and this whole kind of section, I mean, this is this last section of chapters is, um, you know, from 54 through 59 is all everything that happens there at the Aeolian from, from walking down into Emray. Uh, until until everything is wrapped up, and so you can kind of treat all those as one as one thing. Um, but this is a very very powerful part of the story, and and something I enjoyed quite a bit. Right, and I just I, again I I love the, the little scene where he's walking to the Aeolian. He's gonna he's gonna try for his pipes, but he's got his friends with him, and just their conversation and how they're as ner- they're more nervous than he is. And the whole um, there's a the tradition where they spit over a landmark. I think, and it's just such a college thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, throw your trees, throw your shoes in the shoe or, tree, or whatever. Yeah. Jump over, yeah, nobody jump over this rock, or everyone walks under this brick. Just, just something like that, you know? Yeah, we had a few of those. We had a few of those. <laughs> we did, and yeah. uh, again, it just like makes the story so grounded for me. But I never did see the people running on campus naked on May first. I saw that several times. Damn it! Where was I, it? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> We're recording this on May 1st. Yes, we are. People could be naked right now. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so we get to the Aeolian. We meet the uh, we meet one owner outside, Dayak, who's playing bouncer. Right. Uh, and then we meet the, I guess, master of ceremonies, for lack of a better word, in stanchion inside. Uh, they go through a lot of a lot of talk about the different beverages that they're going to drink, and you know, and it's all just a cheerful, like college kids, like college kids would, and it's just a cheerful, fun time. And you know, Quoth is his normal brash, charming, over the top, you know, full of bravado self in in both meeting Dayok and Stanchion, um, and then of course Ambrose shows up, but Ambrose does not confront him. He doesn't say anything to him. He just kind of makes eye contact and then mills around and Mm -hmm. waits. And, you know, we have a couple people play music uh, to get it, you know, to kind of ground us and give us a sense of what, uh, you know, this is like and how difficult it is before Quoth goes up and plays the Lay of Sir Sir Savian Tralliard. Tralliard. The last part, I, I couldn't quite remember how it was pronounced, but so... The Lay of Sir Savian Trolliard. And his whole hope, his crazy-ass hope, is that there's going to be somebody there to play the female part. Now, of course, we know from other things that were said beforehand that somebody is going to be there and that it's going to be the the woman. The, the, the woman. The woman. The love interest. You know, the one with the two round of face, as Bast said, or... Uh, Crooked nose. The crooked nose. That's what it was. Yeah. But perfect ears. But perfect ears. You you don't you don't you don't always appreciate somebody with perfect ears. <laughs> um, and you know, so he goes up there, and for the most part, although, I, and I I don't mean this in a negative way, it kind of plays out exactly how you would expect it's going to play out. It's well written. Don't get me wrong. It's enjoyable to read, but it kind of plays out exactly like you would think it's going to play out with one notable exception. And that is that 
at the point, you know, where it's kind of, we're really kind of at the critical ending juncture where he can close and wrap up the song, one of his strings breaks. And, you know, this whole thing could really come crashing down in a horrible, embarrassing, epic fail. But as we know, Quoth can play the lute with four strings. <laughs> But can he play the Leia's her Sabian Traliard with six strings? The answer is yes, at least the ending. Well, and let's talk about the Leia's her Sabian Traliard because, I, you know, for me, since I, I read this book years ago and every time I read it, I want to hear this song. So it, it's just really exciting to me that this is being adapted for the screen and we're going to get a chance and that Lin-Manuel Miranda is writing it. Well, he's going to have his work cut out for him because... They build this song up. They right? build this song up, and like, they, this is this is the the bomb diggity of songs. This is the yeah. I, I can't think of an equivalent right now because you and I don't like the same kind of music. But this is like the bestiest of the best songs you ever heard. Well, it's the bestiest of the best song, but it's also like you know Bach four part inventions on laid on top of it. Like right. if it was laid on top of like you know Uptown Funk, you know like. <laughs> It's a pretty good song, um, you know. <laughs> but you know, so yeah, Quoth comes into this, you know, saunters into this place, um, and and tells the owner, you know, I need a place to burn, and <laughs> that's uh, the best. Gets up there and just and whips out the hardest song. And the guys, are you, you know? sure you want to play yeah. that? <laughs> you don't even. You're just okay. All right. <laughs> and so yeah, he just pulls it out, and so you know, I, I think I feel like. There's been enough of, we've witnessed enough of the rug kind of getting pulled out from under our protagonist in this book that we're just, at this point in the story, you're itching for something to go really right. Yeah, you know, absolutely, you're, you're yeah. just, you're itching for like an epic triumph and you really get that in this scene. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, Patrick Rothfuss does a really good job with this character of keeping a good balance between him just doing stupid things like jumping off of roofs or pissing off Ambrose and then walking in there and getting kicked out of the, you know, getting kicked out of the archives, but also him, you know, being really good. Like he keeps a really good balance of that, but you're right. You know, in this, in this area, you want him, you really want him to succeed. And, and like I said, it, it goes kind of how you want it to go. But I think that little extra thing that he throws in on top of it, of the unexpected breaking of the string, mm -hmm. you know, that's the that's kind of the wild card that gets played there. And he's earned the ability to pull that epic feat off in the spite of this challenge because he's already laid that groundwork for it. You know, if he hadn't laid that groundwork for it, it would seem it would seem like a Mary Sue sort of thing. Right. And I, yes, that's, that's a really good point. Like with this character, you, you've been through so much with him. You've seen those, those months in the woods that he just played the lute on four strings. So yeah, it's not like, Oh, and all of a sudden I was like epic shredding on my lute rock star, you know, I broke like, the string and was like, whatever, man. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what? Like, Oh yeah. He, this character put in that work to learn that and like that's why he can do that yeah you know so it, it goes you know it really goes amazingly well and he get he earns his silver pipes yeah 
and he gets a bag of Did money. Did you pump your fist? I, I pumped was, my fist well, a little bit. Well, you were bit. sleeping next to me, and I didn't oh. want to wake you up. But Internal fist pumping. Yes, very much so. Um, he gets a bag of money from, you know, from one of the guys who was a good character. I like the... Uh, the Trap? Uh, yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember his name, but I like that dude. Um, Tim Curry. Good one. Good one, good one. I like that. The, um, you know, it all goes really well. Of course, the whole time he's searching for, he's searching for, what's what's the name of the? Um, Aloween. Aloween, okay. He's searching for his Aloween, you know, and he goes through this whole thing of, you know, searching out all these women. And as soon as he hears them talk, he realizes, oh, that's not it. That's not it. You know, is he going to find her? Is he going to find her? Is he going to find her? All moving all throughout um, the Aeolian to try and figure out what was up. And then, you know, finally at, you know, the moment when he's ready to give up, he he finds her. And lo and behold, who is it? Of course. It's Denna. And Denna. God damn Denna. Denna. Damn it. Who I told you we would see again. And you were right. Yeah. Not that that was a, not that that was a very difficult prediction to make. I did not expect that we would see her this quickly or that she would be the love in, you know the love interest of the series i didn't i didn't expect that that's who it would be mm-hmm. but of course upon seeing denna you know there like like it always is with denna there are more questions than there are answers right you know it's not as simple as oh here she is and she's the love interest it's you know he talks to her and he you know he's starts to talk to her she you know she explains that she was in that other town just a week ago um where she learned the song she's only heard it twice now quoth talk i mean this is as badass as this whole scene is from a you know from a musician standpoint you know this is um you know it's eric johnson playing cliffs of dover which you don't know what that means but but then, I totally know what that of means. Of course, you know what that means. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't assume. Who who am I? Who am I to think? Who am I to think? I. What am I? Um, but this is like her, you know, walking in, and, you know, playing a pivotal part in that, having only heard the song twice. So she basically, in her little part, just completely. I, I mean, makes his very impressive feat look fairly blasé mm-hmm. in what she's able to accomplish. And, and it once again is like, who the hell is this? Like, who is this woman, you know? Um, and she, you know, is very pointedly asks him if he's alone because he finds her up in the area where all the couples, you know, are canoodling. And she makes it a point to say, are you here by yourself? Um, but then very quickly who walks up and throws an arm around her, but it's quotes, good old friend Savoy that apparently they were on a date together. Right. And, you know, and then on top of it, you know, there's this whole elaborate scene of him trying to say all the debt that, you know, I owe you and them going back and forth and back and forth and the very awkward conversation going on with Savoy being right there being like, dude. This is my day, you know, pointed looks. Yeah. A lot of pointed looks going on, (laughs) you know, and then he tries to get her to give him her name, which I didn't quite understand why he would ask that. Maybe I missed something because he knows her name. 
she's, you know, after much posturing and going back and forth, she says her name is Diane. Right. And then he gets drunk and goes home. Yes. So, a couple of things for me. Um, Denna does have a lot of questions at this point. She's a fae. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have a hard time with Denna's character without going too much into it. But really, the crux of the problem that I have with Denna is kind of what you said. Like, quoth performs this feat okay but because we've seen what he's been through he feels like he earned it and this character even though she may have earned it we don't know that she just kind of waltzes in and is the most beautiful the most perfect the best singer you know everyone loves her all the guys fall in love with her she's just kind of that that something about mary character yeah yeah. you're like well what it just it doesn't almost feel like a real person. Well, Bass didn't think she was the most beautiful. That's true. And that's definitely something to... And there's some some speculation as to whether ba- uh, Denna use some, uses some kind of sorcery or uses some kind of magic to make herself more attractive. But but that is, that is a good point. And I think the whole interlude where Bast is talking about like, oh, no, I, I met her and this, is, this was my impression. So... It raises again the issue of is Quoth a reliable? How reliable is he in his narration? Well, yeah, that and that's where I was going to go. And it seems fairly clear to me that a lot of what you're getting of Denna is heavily filtered through that lens, right? You know, and you know, and when you're in that sort of infatuated state, as he clearly is. Sometimes you don't think to ask questions that you should maybe ask or you don't pick up on things you should pick up on. You know, he's he we should not only forget not only is he infatuated, but he's infatuated and 15. Yeah, that's true. And you you definitely see his age at this at this point, because not not only age, because the, the 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 youth and the inexperience, but also the sheer hormones of it all. Right. Right. You know, on top of it. So, I, you know, to me, it speaks very much to the unreliable narrator. Yes. And then we have Bass' impression of her, which is, which is that she was lovely and she had something special about her. And when she smiled, it was she had a beautiful smile and and was charming. But there were she wasn't perfect. He's not going to go conquer kingdoms for her. Right. And Quoth. Again, in this interlude where, where there, he's kind of, well, Quoth is struggling to describe her. There's not words to describe how perfect she is. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even ever put it into words. And Bass says that. And Quoth is like, he's still obviously having some very serious, there's some serious bad juju going on when it comes to even talking about Denna. Because at one point he gets up, he tries to describe her, he gets up, rips up. <laughs> Yeah, rips, rips the, the page from Chronicler's yeah. hand, scratches it out, you know, Party just kind of loses it, kind of I mean, loses it. He's really being um, a dick, yeah. Yeah, and, and really can't can't even bring himself to start talking about her. But once he does, then he kind of tells the story of, of, okay, yeah, there she was. She was with my friend. He's completely smitten, obviously. But, you know, I think it I think it's a good example of show, don't tell again. Mm-hmm. You know, and ha- I mean, he's he's showing you 
how this character is, you know, beyond any logic, he is nutso over this woman, you know, and he can say it and he does say it, but he clearly shows you in his actions that he he's a mess when it comes to her, you know, and he can, he can be, you know, very logical and very cold, um, and he can be brilliant and all these other things, but once again, his emotions, are, he's a slave to his emotions. Uh, he clearly is, and this is just one of those areas, you know. We don't know yet what it's going to mean. Obviously, there's some there's some bad stuff that's going to come of this, but she's not with him now, you know. Where's she at now, you know? So it's not going to go well, you know, we know that, um, but we don't really know why or how or how it's going to fall apart or, you know, what it all means. But, man, she's a strange bird. That den is a strange bird. Indeed. And so, you know, the very last chapter, which you kind of summed up as Quoth gets drunk and goes home. (laughs) It's called All This Knowing. And for me, it was one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the book it's well yeah it's well written i didn't mean to be dismissive of it okay it's, good it's very well written. good that's yeah. a little personally <laughs> not really but no it is it's it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of writing in the book and even though plot wise all that happens is he and his friends get drunk walk home but just the way he describes it that that feeling of, of just being young you know walking home with your friends feeling like you're the center of the universe and nothing bad's ever going to happen. Um, and I think that's something that every, most people can relate to. And yeah, again, absolutely. it just makes his character feel so real. Trivia tidbit, which most people who are fans of the book and are following it know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when um, Lin-Manuel Miranda read this book, he tweeted a picture of that page, of that chapter. Ah. And said, this is... Um, this is the feeling I was trying to capture when I wrote story of tonight. Yeah. Which is a song in his, in his musical Hamilton. That's about four friends, young friends drinking together, like, you know, fans of both, both of these people's works just went, and that's great. I I mean, I hadn't heard that before, but of course I know story of tonight and you know, that's a, it's a great, great analog. Those two, you know, fit very well together. And yeah. Yeah. And so that was, you know, fans of, of the book and of um, the play were just like, yay. And then they had this little Twitter bromance, um, <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda and Patrick Rothfuss. That was, it's just adorable. Um, so it's it's pretty exciting that that has played out that, that he's going to write the music for the play. I can't, or the, the whatever screen adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of anyone else that I could would be more fitting to try and write the lay of Sir Savian Tralliard. I mean, yeah, it, it is great. And I know Patrick Rothfuss has talked about, you know, it's more important to him, you know, who he works with and what the quality of the work is, as opposed to, you know, how much money they pay him for this. You know, he wants it, he wants it to be, you know, what he wants it to be, um, you know, and wants to have that control. And I mean, it seems like he's happy with the folks at Lionsgate. And if they're, you know, if they're allowing, you know, him to have some control and put, Lin-Manuel Miranda and get them involved seems like they're invested in doing it the right way so I think that to me speaks well of our chances of getting a good movie slash TV show whatever they're going to make out of this you know um, 
So all good stuff as far as that is concerned. Right. So. So next week. What are we going to cover next week? Um, we're going to um, c- cover chapters 60 through 70. 60 through 70. 60 a nice, through 70. even 10 chapters. I yep. like it. Yep. I like it. All right. So is it time for predictions? Predict it up, baby. I got predictions this Predict time. Predict it. Every, the last couple of chapters, or um, excuse me, last few podcasts, I've been like, I, you know, at this point, I've been like, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have even said that because I don't know what I have to predict. Um, but this time, this time I got some. So, and some of these aren't are necessarily just about this particular section, but I've got a theory around the waystones or the graystones, whatever you want to call them. Right. And when we go through the early part of the books, it seems like any time we're at a really critical junction or something happens, there's a waystone or a graystone involved. We start out at the waystone in. Right. Um, when we run into a graystone right before his uh, parents die. Yep. When he has his dream in the woods, there's a way, a waystone that's acting like some sort of a gate with like some sort of weird film. And I think, I think that in particular is very, very important. Um, when he is at the end staring into Denna's eyes, losing himself, they're sitting on the stones from a waystone. Mm-hmm. So the ar- the four corners door in the archive is made out of gray stone, not gray space stone, but gray stone is made from the same stone. Um, so it, it tells me that these, these things are important. It's not, it's been in the background kind of window dressing for all of these different scenes, but the presence in all these really critical scenes tells me there's something important there. That's um, a really good observation. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I'm looking at it as being some sort of a gate or portal or way into the fae realm or out of the fae or something, you know, or a way to, you know, to move something along those lines. You know, I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I think it's going to be critical and I think it's going to be some sort of passage. And that caused me to think a little bit more about the Skrael from the beginning. Right. You know, and I thought, well, did they come through there? I don't know, you know. Um, are they creatures from a different a different world rather than, you know, necessarily from some particularly or bad guy? Are they just creatures from some other plane or whatever and they're coming through a waystone? I don't know. Probably not. That's but... a really good observation. Thank you. Thank you. There was also the, the conversation when when we run into the Chandrian um, at the scene where Quoth's parents die and they talk about the Amir and the singers and the singers is capitalized right now a lot of people sang songs about the chandrian we had kids songs in the very beginning yes yes and the chandrian didn't show up and murder everybody very true but when um arladin of the Edamaru, you know bust out a few stanzas about the chandrian they show up and kill every motherfucker they can. Right. So leads me to believe that the singers are somehow the Edamaru from hmm. a long, 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 long time ago. 
Hmm. May not be a direct correlation, but there's some reason why other people can sing, you know, songs about Chandrian and nobody loses their mind and shows up and, you know, kills 40 people. Uh, but as soon as Arladen does, you know, all bets are off. So that's my thought there. Let's see. And then um, Denna's a fae. She's not really a fae, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's something going on there, though. Clearly something. So I don't think she's a fae anymore. I thought, you know, maybe she's just an alien. I don't know. <laughs> So those 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 she's are my android. She's an android. <laughs> Damn it. Um, she's gonna count electronic sheep. All right. So any fandom news? Anything you wanna? No. Go over there. Where this is kind of a long one, but I actually do have a couple of items. Oh, lay them on me. See, every once in a while I come up with something good. So we talked about this before, and because it's been it's been talked about a bunch, but I have a fairly new article here. So Sony um, is committing to producing a Wheel of Time TV show or movie. Yeah, I feel like that's. I feel like there's always something floating around that says they're going to do that. Yep, and I agree with you, and I've seen them before as well. Um, the only reason I bring it up is because this is, you know, this article is only a couple days old and we really, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, I, I'm with you where I sort of feel like, okay, when something actually happens, we'll, we'll believe what happens. But, uh, but the information is still out there. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. Okay. couple of other things here. So it looks like Clara from Doctor Who, the the um, companion, be making a special return for the 2017 Christmas special. Cool. And let's see. There is... By the way, yeah. Doctor Who, like, this season has been phenomenal. And I have to get on top of it because I haven't watched them yet. You really... I mean, I know you kind of fell away a bit in the Matt Smith years. and And really... I didn't love Clara and Capaldi together. I just didn't. I don't know if it was the writing those couple episodes or what, but the new companion, Bill, is fantastic. The writing, I feel, has been real strong the last couple episodes. Um, It's been creepy and funny and just really good Doctor Who. So... Anyone who's who's fallen away in the last couple of seasons may want to to give it a go again because I'm really I'm enjoying it more than I've enjoyed Doctor Who in a while. Yeah, I want to get I want to get out there and 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 give it it's just it's just uh, attention because I, I you know it's one of my favorite shows for a long time and like you said I fell off for quite a while and I enjoyed the Capaldi episodes that I saw. But I don't know, It's it was hard for me to get back into it after having stepped away for so long. So I'd like to get, and I think you're right, the writing wasn't great. So I'd like to get to get back into it. It's a shame because I really liked the actor, you know, Matt Smith. He had, there were some great episodes during his run. Yeah. But yeah, overall, oh, the writing just felt kind of bogged down and like... Not well thought out to me. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, we want to get back to that. Now, a couple of other things here. So we've heard about um, in Game of Thrones, we've heard about them creating the Dothraki, Dothraki language. Um, and there's a book for it. I think one of us. You have it. Yeah, say I have the. I have it. I have not opened it. But um, but that's okay. You should get on that. I clearly should. Just saying before the next date night. But but if I really want to get good at it, um, I can go to the University of Berkeley, California, um, which will be offering a class in Dothraki. Of course, <laughs> they are. Of course, they are. It's a six-week course, uh, and David Peterson, the guy who actually wrote both of those, Rocky and Valerian, has a has a class on the two languages. Oh, good for him! Yeah. So that's my that's my fandom news. Good job, honey. Thank you. I I do stuff every. I once appreciate in a while. your fandom news. Thank you. Thank you. I did not know some of that stuff. All right, so you can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast dot com on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and also at Twitter on the D&D podcast. And we'll say what we always say. Please don't forgive us, forget to give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and Google Play. We are on, uh, we've talked about Spreaker and Overcast in the past, but I haven't figured out how to get on those yet. So right now we are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, which really should um, give us access to anybody who wants to be able to listen to the podcast should be able to get through in one of those uh, three ways. And, of course, you can always listen on the website as well. Hi, Mom. <laughs> um, I'm just, my mom's not listening. My mom might be. She offered to, but I was like, Mom. Yeah, really? It's yeah. okay. If you're not reading the books, it's, uh, anyway, you know, we asked for the reviews, but I'm going to I'm gonna take it a step further, actually. I'm going to ask, we love the reviews. Please, please give us the reviews. But if you really want to help us, tell somebody. Tell somebody about the podcast. Pimp us out. That's right. That's right. So tell your friends. We're not wearing pants. And some <laughs> some of us are wearing pants. Um, if you if you really you said pants were optional. I believe you said that. <laughs> but that but that's okay. They are optional. You know, it, listeners at home, pants are optional. I mean, Go you know, ahead. it's all right. Do in, you. In truth, if you're not living in the Arctic, they're always optional. Totally. If you're willing to live with the consequences, <laughs> pants is, pants are always optional. It's true. Um, but, you know, uh, the reviews are great. But if you really want to help us out, tell a friend, you know, and if um, and you're if you're like us and you don't have uh, you don't know that many friends who have read these books, then pimp it out on social media, you know. Tweet about it. Put it out there on Facebook. Right? Sure, yeah. Am I wrong here? Uh, there's no lie. I don't see the lie there. <laughs> All right, so this is this is coming in at our longest podcast ever. Right, right. Um, and what are our house words? What are our podcast house words? We do not edit. We do edit. not edit. <laughs> so, so with that, anything else you have? No. Ooh, nothing? No. Nothing? End it now before it. it gets weird. Oh, I think we're past that point. <laughs> All right. So good night, everybody. Have a good night. Good night. Mm-hmm.